Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt here with my co-host Octavia Bright. Hi Octavia, how are you? Hi Carrie, I am good. I'm in my pyjamas and it's a good place to be. But Mm. much more importantly, how are you? You have COVID. (laughs) I've had COVID for a long time now. Let me say, it's also very retro of you. (laughs) <laughs> I know. <laughs> Although it is around. Lots of people have it. Oh, I know. Yeah, I've been in, this has been a bad one. I've been in bed for, I've lost track of how long I've been in bed, but I was out of work since last Wednesday and it's now Saturday when we're recording this. And that's not even the Wednesday past, that's the Wednesday before that. I live in bed now. I haven't gone outside for almost a full two weeks. So yeah, there's a real mole energy going on over here. (laughs) Also trooper energy because you are still recording from the mole. What is a mole's layer called? A hill? Dispatches from the mole hill with Carrie Plitt. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm actually in bed, but I am feeling a lot better than I was. And it's nice to just be chatting with you, honestly. So I'm hoping this won't be too taxing for me. But if I start like trailing off, please forgive me, listeners. All will be forgiven immediately. But before we get into it, let's get business out of the way. If you like, you can support us on Patreon by subscribing at patreon.com forward slash litfriction, where you will also get access to an extra mini minisode each month. There are now I've lost count, more than 30 waiting for you. And you can also suggest themes for us to chat about there. You can. But now back to Minisode 45 and thanks for tuning in. The format for these Minisodes between full shows is for the next half hour or so, we'll first have an informal conversation about the topic in hand and anything else that might come up and then recommend some cultural things that we've enjoyed lately. We sure will. You know the drill by now. Our theme this month was suggested by our patron, Morale, who asked us if we would do an episode about our relationship (laughs) and friendship. So guys, welcome to Couples Therapy. But her main thing was that she said she was interested in how our personalities align, which is a a lovely way of putting it. We did think it might be a little bit self-indulgent to spend a whole episode talking just about us and and our love for one another. So we're also going to return to the theme of friendship more broadly, which some of you will remember we covered a few years ago. But before we get into any of that as well, we have a pretty big announcement to make, don't we, Carrie Plitt? We do, which is that after 10 really wonderful years, we've come to the end of the road with literary friction. Oh, man. Um, I know. You say as though you're just finding out. (laughs) (laughs) No, but saying it out loud in this format in front of a microphone, it makes it feel very real. Yeah. No, it's it's tough to say, but... I know I can speak for both of us when I say that this project has been such a huge source of joy in both our lives. Oh my God, yeah. We have learned so much. We've spoken to countless fascinating authors over the years. And of course, we've loved interacting with you, our wonderful, beautiful listeners. Oh man, yeah. And we wish we could keep it running, but even with the support of those of you that so generously subscribe on Patreon without really robust funding. It's become just unsustainable to manage alongside our other jobs. It has. And it's really sad, but it's true. It's just too much time and energy alongside everything else we have to juggle. And it's been a real labor of love in the most kind of beautiful and profound way over these past 10 years. But ultimately, love does not pay the bills. I wish it did. So yeah, it's interesting also that it's come to this point of 
what feels like quite a natural place to end it. And um, we realized we were looking back and actually the first show in this format as Literary Friction went out on the 9th of November, 2013, when we were but slips of a thing. Wow. And this episode is going to play out on the 16th of November, 2023. So it's a full decade of literature and friction. <laughs> on the airwaves and friendship and friendship oh man yeah. yeah you know what's so weird i feel nervous even talking about this anyway but don't worry this won't be the last episode we have a full show with the amazing shalu guo at the end of the month and then we're planning a real bumper year in review for december which will also be our goodbye episode which will not be too self-indulgent but we do want to say goodbye we do and also we are really hoping to do a couple of live events in the new year to say goodbye to some of you in person, but it's all dependent on whether we can secure some funding to put them on. So we'll keep you posted on that front. We're looking into it. We're trying to hustle for it. If you are an organization or just an extremely wealthy individual who wants to help with a bit of sponsorship or even giving us a venue or anything for a final mini farewell tour, then we would love to hear from you. We've been talking to our lovely friends at Pages of Hackney to see if we can get something moving, but we just need a bit of dosh to be able to make it work. So we are here and ready to hear from you with your checkbooks. <laughs> great, great hustle. Great Love hustle. It. It's very cringe. I'm sorry. Um, but we have to be real with you guys about the situation, I think. We do. No, I think it's really important to acknowledge that we need money. Yeah. Anyway, but now on with the show. Yeah, it's back to the peppy cracking of that whip. <laughs> okay, back to the show. In 2018, we did a show about friendship with the one and only Dolly Alderton, who had just published what went on to be the best-selling smash hit Absolute Sensation, her memoir, Everything I Know About Love. And in that episode, we spoke with Dolly about how friendship narratives are often secondary to stories of romantic love. But actually, if you think about it, friendships are often the most enduring relationships in our lives. Like lovers and partners come and go. We know 50% of marriages end in divorce, but good friends really can be there for life and they stick with you through all the ups and downs in your romantic life. We talked with Dolly about platonic love. We talked in the show chat about some of the big friendship stories in literature that we really loved. The big one, obviously, that comes to mind is that between Leela and Lenu in Elena Franti's Neapolitan Quartet. But we also talked about the romance of friendship and how, you know, you can really fall in love with your friends and it is such a beautiful way of falling in love. And I think that's because it's often actually a love without idealization. It's hard not to have idealized perspectives on your kind of romantic partner, or at least when you're first dating or whatever. But with friends, I think it's often a very forgiving kind of love and a very open kind of love that doesn't have the same potential to be possessive as some kinds of romantic love can be. So I think the thing that I find so moving and uplifting about friendship is that it's the kind of love that really can stretch to make room for change and difference, particularly those relationships that are able to endure over many years. And I think that flexibility has been really crucial to our long friendship and also to our long working relationship, which, you know, they're very intertwined, but the friendship came first. But yeah, I was thinking about this because in a lot of ways we are 
very similar, but in a lot of ways, we're very different. Oh yeah, baby. Right? (laughs) (laughs) We are, we are. And it's been such a joy to get inside your mind in our friendship and also over the course of the show. I think that's what's great about it. We agree on a lot. We have some big similarities related to our relationship with language and people, I think, for instance. Yeah, big time. But there are also real, genuine differences. And it's that combination of clicking, but also friction. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) And also a kind of fascination with that friction that makes a great friendship. Sometimes I do wonder if we play up our differences in the podcast a little bit. (laughs) I'm not as stoic and emotionally robotic or into spreadsheets and order as I sometimes claim I am. I don't think you come across as emotionally robotic on okay, the show good. at all. Like <laughs> at all. Okay, that's one of my worries. So that's nice no, to hear. No, 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 no. Absolutely not. You do not. But I do think that you play up being, you are organized, but you don't necessarily love organization, right? You just, you are Yeah. And I think like the other people in my life would be like, you're not organized. (laughs) But then that just shows how far on the spectrum I am in the other direction. (laughs) (laughs) But at the same time, I really feel like my life has been enhanced by experiencing the way you look at the world, even in its not played up version. So I'm constantly interested in how you think about things like time and abstraction, for instance, and the way you experience emotions. I also think you've really pushed me into new ways of seeing. I've always loved the way that you're committed to radical perspectives. And as much as I tease you about it, I love your lens of seeing through things like heteronormative, patriarchal, white capitalism. (laughs) (laughs) There it is. And, you know, I think it's also important to acknowledge that we've definitely had conflict over the years, both Mm. in life and in work. But I feel like our relationship is richer because we've found a way to navigate through those conflicts. And it's also just been a pleasure to watch you change and grow over the years and be there for it. Like, we've known each other for almost 15 years now. And that's a long time in someone's life, especially in the period of life that we've been in. And it's sort of amazing to me that I know the person you are now and I know the person you were then. Sorry to be sappy. No, I feel the same way. Yeah. And like you said, like if you meet someone when you're in your university age years, so much life happens in the 15 years that follow from Mm -hmm. your early 20s through to you now, baby, we are in our late 30s. <laughs> but yeah, I feel exactly the same way. And I think on the point of, of kind of navigating conflict, for me, it's a crucial part of knowing someone truly and deeply. And I think I'd almost go as far as to say, you don't really know someone as deeply if you've not navigated some conflict with them, because it means that you're both actually being yourselves, right? Like you are two separate beings with two different ways of looking at things. No matter how similar you might feel, there are moments where you won't be harmonious, especially if you're working on a project together, if you're sharing something in your life that really requires you to navigate difference together. And I think knowing that you can navigate those differences with trust and with respect, that's at the heart of healthy intimacy for me, not the avoidance of conflict or not having conflict. I think that figuring out how to 
do that together has been really important in the working relationship as well. But also the thing that's made that more possible, I think, is as you say, we sort of play up our difference in our persona on the show because it's a bit funny and I am definitely less disorganized in lots of ways than I come across. It's true. It is true. You know what? I do manage to get out of bed in the morning and put my clothes on and my socks are not on the wrong feet and all that stuff. You are actually a deeply functional human. Thank you. I learn how to be. (laughs) (laughs) I did have to learn it, but you're right. I am a deeply functional human. But I do think that one of the things at the heart of this creative partnership and at the heart of how we've been able to navigate some of the conflicts in it is that fundamentally our differences are mostly pretty complementary. And I think that means we can pick up each other's slack without much resentment. And that's really crucial to a productive working relationship as well, right? I will never not be amazed and also, frankly, extremely relieved by how happy you are to do things like the scheduling, right? And reminding me when shows are out and things, because as you hinted earlier on, time is not something that I experience in the same way as you. (laughs) (laughs) And I genuinely find that stuff very mentally taxing. That is a way in which I'm perhaps not that functional. And I think it's just an extraordinary stroke of luck that my disorganization on that front doesn't drive you crazy, actually, and that it seems easy for you to do that, because there are other people who I think it would be a deal breaker. And ditto like my dyscalculia. You know, my strong advice is, listeners, if you can't do numbers, find you a business partner who can do numbers (laughs) and doesn't hate them. I have to say it's fun for me because I don't think I'm that good at it, but you're so amazed when I'm able to do things like that, that it makes me feel really great. (laughs) It's because it's truly something I can't manage. My intellect does not work in that direction. But also, like you were saying, like I've definitely become less disorganized in so many ways from working with you because I've picked up some really great tools and I've learned from your way of doing things. And also, there's no doubt that you've pushed me to read outside of my own taste in a really enriching and enlightening way. And it's shaped my writing as well as my thinking. And that is this like extraordinarily beautiful gift. And it also means that I always want to know what you think about everything. There's no, there's never something I'm not interested to know what you think about, you know, which is, I think, really profound. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. But also, you know, the friendship between us preceded the working relationship, but then it has also been anchored by it and also I think profoundly shaped by it because our working relationship is focused around and grounded by regular conversations about books, right? And ideas. And I was thinking like, do you think that has had a big effect on the way we've got to know one another? If our working relationship was structured around cooking, it would be different, right? So like, how do you think books in particular can shape a friendship? First of all, we would be in trouble if our working relationship was shaped around (laughs) cooking. Can you imagine? It would just be crisps and dips. Either of us excel in that area. No offense. (laughs) Oh my love, none taken. None taken. No, I think it should be acknowledged that you make a very good latke. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. I try. I try. I have some dishes. I'm getting better, as do you. I do, I do. But you know, come on. You've made some nice dinners for me. But it's not not our passion, let's just say. But on to the question of books. Yeah, I think it's profoundly shaped our friendship. And I've loved having a friendship with you that is mediated by books. Because books, when shared, are this amazing forum for continuous conversation about taste and what we value in art, but also just our perspectives on the world. It's great that we could read at least one book alongside each other every month and really work out together what we thought of it and why. Mm. We've had tons of WhatsApp and real life conversations as we read, just picking apart what we liked, our hesitations, you know, what we're looking for. And 
of course, that always transitioned into bigger ideas about what we don't like and like in books and art, and indeed our perception and perspective on reality, which is, of course, like that those things are inseparable from each other. So that's been really enriching and it's helped me get to know myself. It's helped me get to know you. It's a real forum for just thinking through everything, thinking about what we think about books. And as we said, we have very different taste. And I think I tend more towards realism and books with kind of an emotional heart, maybe, although you might dispute that the books you like don't have an emotional heart, but you're a little bit more interested in maybe abstraction. Sometimes you have more tolerance for books that are more cerebral or surreal. Yeah, I think that's totally true. But I'm so glad that knowing you and doing the show with you means that I read books I would have never read otherwise. I was always well, almost always glad that I read the books that you recommended. And I sometimes even really love them. And it has shaped my reading taste. I think I'm a more adventurous reader because of the things that you recommended to me. And I really trust you. Even though our taste is so different, I also really trust your taste. We almost always end up agreeing strangely about books. Even if one of us really loves it and the other one kind of appreciates it, I think it's very rare that one of us has really loved something and the other just hasn't got it at all. Yeah. In fact, I can't really think of anything where that's been the case. It's more like it doesn't necessarily speak to us, but we can totally get what it was doing and appreciate it, like you said. Yeah, I do think we often look for different things from books. I definitely have a limit for how much contemporary realism I can take at one time because I find reality enough already, basically. <laughs> <laughs> but I definitely have a bigger appetite for it now because of you and books you've introduced me to. But I also think having a friendship mediated by books, particularly fiction, novels, it kind of means you can gossip without trash-talking actual people you know. <laughs> Such a good point, right? yes. And gossip is a really bonding experience. But being able to gossip without the guilt of knowing that you're doing somebody down who's a real person, is like win, 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 right? Like when I was reading the Ferrante books, it was so joyful to be able to WhatsApp you the whole way through to trash talk that fucking scumbag <laughs> fuckboy Nino Saratore. <laughs> like it was just this extremely delightful experience that enhanced my reading experience of the book so much. And I did feel like we both knew him and he was this like fuckhead who was screwing around with a friend of ours, which just shows the way that like a book creates a community around it immediately if you and somebody else you care about are reading it together or have read it. But also honestly being a bit more serious, I think that because literature of any kind, and actually I think you can apply this to the arts in general, but because the arts, literature deal in ideas, they offer this framework for asking each other the big questions without it feeling like you're interrogating somebody. So it's not like I sit down in front of you and I'm like, so Carrie, what do you think about faith? And what do you think about love? And what do you think about politics? But it means that we can get to know how one another feels about those things without going in head on. And it happens in a sideways way, which I think can facilitate a level of intimacy that comes about without people having to make themselves necessarily so vulnerable. And I also think, as you say, the kinds of books that someone's drawn to, their, their taste in books or whatever, it can tell you a lot about them and what their main concerns are in life or what their, what their obsessions are. And that's also another way of knowing somebody. But I think the other thing about it is that it's sort of shared ground, but also as we've talked about on the show before, like books are a way or sharing books are a way of letting somebody in. Someone recommends you a book and you go and actually read it. 
it's such a kind of demonstration of willingness in the relationship and investment in the relationship because a book it requires your time and it shows a desire to like be closer to somebody to know their mind better or engage with what's important to them and i think in any relationship those gestures are golden it's so true it's like giving a gift but it has even more meaning because yeah. of the way that you have to engage with that gift. And also because I think picking up books for people is such a special thing. Yeah, it's amazing. And then it's also something that will bond you together forever because you will always be inscribed into that experience for them and that way of feeling seen and known by them. So over the years, over the decade, let's say, we've been told by loads of listeners in emails and also people we've met and out and about that they tune in for our friendship as much as for the books and the authors, which is such a beautiful thing to hear over the years. It's really like very heartwarming for us and also a relief. <laughs> but it's also, I was thinking, it's how I feel about some of my favorite podcasts as well, right? Like when it's clear the hosts are actually genuinely friends in real life, then there comes a point in my listening where that's what I'm there for more than whatever they're talking about, right? And I wondered, what do you think is so appealing about that? What is so appealing about listening in on other friendships? And the whole thing of parasocial relationships, whatever, it can be put in a very negative light. But this is something about that is very enriching. And I wonder, yeah, what your thoughts are. Yeah, it's how I feel too with other podcasts, as you say. I have a few podcasts where I would basically tune in to hear the host talking about their thoughts on mashed potatoes. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I'm genuinely curious to hear what they think about mashed potatoes and how their like friendship is manifest through their conversation on that. Yeah. And I'm mainly there for their interactions with each other and for the intimacy of the podcasting medium. And it was actually very devastating when I heard from someone who had interned with one of the podcasts that I really love, which will go unnamed, that two of the hosts actually don't get along very well with each other. I was so upset oh to my hear God. it. And now I hear it when I listen, which adds an interesting dynamic. Oh my God, I want to know so badly what this is. I'll tell you off air. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> yes. And as you say, I think the podcasting medium has something to do with it. Having people's conversations in your ears is just so intimate. Yeah. And it feels like a kind of eavesdropping, especially when the chatter is not just professional banter. And I find the podcasts that I really love, I love when I get little clues about people's lives in the midst of how they're talking about yeah. whatever the subject of the podcast is. It's like you're getting to know them as the way you would a friend, yeah. basically. But why do we like that intimacy? I guess... It's a fascination and curiosity with the lives of others. And listening to a friendship makes it start to feel like a friendship in itself. And as you say, there can be that negative word parasocial relationship, but that becomes a bad thing when you start to think that the people are your friends. And if you encounter them on the street and you're just talking to them as you would a friend, that's like a misunderstanding of what the relationship actually is. Mm. But I like that turning on a podcast feels like I'm catching up with old friends. And I, yeah. I like the idea that that would be true for our listeners as well. Yeah. I don't know if I've really answered the question, but what are your thoughts on it? I think I agree with everything you just said, and I feel the same way. But I also think that one of the crucial things is that it's a kind of intimacy that basically requires absolutely no risk-taking from you, the listener. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you get to show up and enjoy the warmth and good vibes between these people without making yourself vulnerable in any way or expending any energy at all. And because the podcast medium isn't a visual one, you don't actually feel voyeuristic because it's audio. It's much more like you can actually feel like you're sitting there 
with these two people, with your favorite hosts or whatever, and you're just not speaking, but you're like in the room with them. So the illusion of your shared intimacy isn't shattered by the like very visual evidence that you are in different places. So I think that has something to do with it. And like you said, like the intimacy of it being in your ears, but there is a lot of space for you to project yourself into Mm. in the audio medium. And I think the other thing is that podcasts are idealized conversations, right? They're like, what? No. (laughs) (laughs) This is exactly how we talk all the time. Yeah, absolutely. No ums, no (laughs) uhs. They're shaped by scripts, like however loosely, but they are. Um, They're edited. And no matter how natural the hosts might sound, like on some level, they're always performing, right? As you said earlier, like we ham up our differences a bit because it's funny, or at least it's funny to us. And I think like we've been doing this so long, we're both very relaxed in front of our microphones. But when there's a microphone in front of you, you're always aware that you're being recorded on some level. I think we're both pretty good at forgetting about it, but it's just like the fact of it being there affects the quality of what happens while it's there. That's just, you can't get away from that. And our conflicts are not necessarily playing out on air. Yeah. And of course not, because also we're professionals. There's the element of professionalization that comes in to the truth of the intimacy. And that's the performance, right? So I think the friendships that we're all listening in on and feeling like cherished by or seen by or whatever are basically the idealized versions and their conversations where people sound witty and well informed and no one rambles on for half an hour about the building work happening next door or whatever. If we showed everyone our WhatsApp chats, on the other hand, it would be like <laughs> extraordinarily boring. And I remember when I, I don't listen anymore really, but when I used to listen to My Favorite Murder and they were a weekly show, so it's all the time these women in my ears. And they talked a lot about how they were navigating conflict because their friendship had to change from being just them chatting to an enormous amount of success, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of listeners. And the business that they ended up setting up together became very lucrative. And like that, it's not something that we've had to deal with so much. But I think that bringing money into friendship often causes problems, especially if it's really large sums. And they were very frank on the podcast about navigating that kind of thing. And I really respected it because it was clear that they were doing some gnarly negotiations off mic. Mm. But they never brought that energy on mic. However, they acknowledged that it was happening on mic, which was important to the project of kind of friendship and, and openness that they were taking part in. So like, again, it's just the sort of layers of closeness that you have to the people who become these like regular voices in your ears over the years. Anyway, what about reading about friendships? Because obviously that's different from podcasts. Do you like reading about friendships in novels and actually also maybe in nonfiction? Do you have a view on that? Yes, I have a view. And it's that I love reading about friendships in novels and nonfiction, especially when the friendship feels like it's really explored in a non-idealistic way and also that it takes center stage. So there are, of course, some great more historical examples of novels that center friendship like Brideshead Revisited. But I do think that, as you sort of alluded to before, often friendships get displaced in favor of things like romantic or familial relationships in novels. But I think that is changing. And I do think there are more novels about friendship like this than there used to be, especially between women or 
more platonic relationships that don't have to end in romance, whether queer or straight. And that's really exciting. And I've loved kind of enjoying those kinds of novels in the past 10 years, really. You mentioned the Neapolitan novels and W by Zadie Smith, I think is a book that does that in really interesting ways. One of my old faves, The Interestings by Meg Wallitzer. (laughs) I also recently read Never Let Me Go by Kazuo Ishiguro, which explores friendship and the kind of romance and petty rivalries of friendship, but even that friendship takes center stage, even if it's also in the context of children being raised to donate their organs who are clones. And sorry if I spoiled that book, but it's been out for a while. Anyway, (laughs) and I've read less nonfiction about friendship. And in some ways, I think it can be a tough subject to write about unless it's a memoir. Maybe there are fewer ways to explore it. I really want to read Ann Patchett's Truth and Beauty, which is a book about her best friend who died and just exploring their relationship. But speaking of nonfiction that isn't memoir, one of my clients, a historian of emotions named Tiffany Watt-Smith, is working on a book called Bad Friend, which is a cultural history of female friendship and all of the ways it has been categorized and demonized over the years in, in both directions, either idealized or not thought to exist as in a perfect state and looking for a new paradigm. And she brings in a lot of art and literature from Toni Morrison to Nan Golden. I've read some of her fully drafted book and it's just really wonderful. And I think an example of how nonfiction can tackle friendship in a really interesting new way. So I'm really excited about that one. That sounds really interesting. Yeah, it's great. And I think one of the reasons I think it's hard to write about friendship is because it doesn't have the same cultural scripts. Yeah. So it's hard to categorize it because what do we do when we break up with a friend? How do we define our different friendships? It's much looser, which makes it more difficult sometimes, but also more potent. Yeah. Because it can hold so much as a concept. So anyway, yeah, I'm really excited about that one. How about you? I also really love reading about friendship and spending time in literature, in books, inside friendships. It's one of the things that can make me probably like almost more giddy on the page than romance because Mm. it feels more specific to the characters, right? As you say, like as Tiffany's exploring in her book, less generalizations are possible because it's so much more about the chemistry between two very specific individuals. Like I was thinking immediately of the scenes between Theo and Boris in Donatar's novel, The Goldfinch, which are like some of the most electric in that whole novel. And also, actually, The Secret History, Donatart writes friendship very well, I think, and the romance of friendship, yeah. But also, more recently, I was thinking about the relationship between Sam and Sadie and also Sam and Marx in Gabrielle Zevin's Tomorrow and Tomorrow, which is this novel that takes friendship and creative partnership really seriously in a way that felt pretty unusual and very special, actually. I also love the group of friends in Jacqueline Crooks's novel Fire Rush, particularly the scenes where they're getting ready to go out in the town. And it felt so true to life. And actually, A Little Life is another book that came up. And I stopped reading it before it got particularly dark because I chickened out. But even just in those first chapters, I was immediately invested in the way Hanya Yanagihara was building her protagonist friendships, which are obviously like vital to that story. And most recently, one of my favorite bits of Kay Patrick's novel, Mrs. S, was the friendship between the narrator and their colleague at the school who instructs them in the world of butchness and butch identity. And it's gorgeous. In terms of nonfiction, yeah, I think you're right. It's harder to write nonfiction that's not memoir about friendship. Recently, I read and have talked about before on the show, Daniel Schreiber's book Alone, which is 
really a book about making a life alone that weaves kind of philosophy and sociology and intellectual reflection in with personal experience. But what's very interesting about it is that book actually began as a book about friendship and it ended up being a book about being alone, but it takes friendship very seriously. And right at the heart of it is this kind of exploration of the possibilities and also the limitations of friendship. And if you build a life where friendship is the most important intimacy in your life, what can you expect from that? So that's a really good one to look at if you're interested in this Mm. topic. And I think my gold standard of kind of friendship memoir has got to be Just Kids by Patti Smith, which is just... I knew it was coming. Of course you did. (laughs) You could feel it in the air. But it's just such a gorgeous tribute to her friend, the artist Robert Maplethorpe. But also what I love about it is it's about a relationship that evolves. So they're lovers at first, and then they realize that their relationship needs to take a different shape. They both need to explore different things. And the enduring and accepting love between them, as she describes it in the book, is just, it's unconditional and it is so beautiful and it is so enriching and inspiring to encounter it on the page. So yeah, I actually feel like this is something that we could talk about forever and ever, but um, I have my eye on the clock a little bit. So let's go to our cultural recommendations. Let's do it. We will be right back in a minute. Friends forever. Friends forever to give you our friendly cultural (laughs) recommendations. Friend, friend. All right, we are back with our cultural recommendations, which will be things that happened before Carrie got COVID. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what is what's up first for you, Carrie Plitt? Up first is Stop Making Sense. Oh my God, I'm dying to see this. Yes. Okay. So this is the famous concert video of the Talking Heads directed by Jonathan Demme. And you might have seen that A24 recently remastered it and released it in cinemas. And I went and saw it before I got COVID. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm so glad I went. I'm sorry to say that I'm pretty sure it won't be in cinemas anymore, but it's still available to watch on streaming. And I think it would still be a really wonderful thing to experience even on a smaller screen. So this is widely regarded as one of the best concert videos of all time. And I really think watching it that I agree, not that I've seen all of them, but it's just, I don't know. It's both something that just like really entertains you, but then also makes you think about the power of performance, the power of music, the way that we engage with music as a group and how that changes an experience of music. Anyway, Mm. I first saw this in college, which was around the time that I really got into the Talking Heads. And of course, this is one of the cool things to watch in your dorm room. (laughs) (laughs) I worked at the reserve desk in the basement of our college library, and this was one of the films that was always getting checked out along with Paris is Burning, weirdly. But anyway, it's one of those things that just lives up to the hype. It's genuinely a performance piece that not only keeps you riveted from the first moment visually, but also as every number subtly shifts, the number of performers on stage, 
and also the set, starting with this solo David Byrne doing an acoustic rendition of Psycho Killer, oh which is God. so good. I got goosebumps even just listening yeah. to you say that. <laughs> but then more people come on stage and they like shift. I don't know. It's just so smart in terms of how it's staged, but it's also so full of joy and music. And I genuinely wanted to get out of my seat and dance for much of the film, especially during some of the more climactic moments and hits like burning down the house and and take me to the river and i know other people who saw this genuinely said it happened in their theater mine not so much because it wasn't that full and it was like in north oxford so i'm not sure that's the crowd but anyway it's so nice to watch it in the cinema partially because it reminds you as i said of the communal power of music and i think this is really cleverly dealt with in the film itself where demi doesn't actually show you the audience until the very, very end, when we just get these wonderful shots of people dancing. And at that point, it just feels like this total release where we've been watching this whole thing together and then we're just like moving our bodies and feeling the music. And it really made me think about how fun the talking heads are. So much fun. (laughs) In addition to just making music that felt really new. David Burns is a genius, I really believe. And you will watch this and believe it even more. Also, it features the giant suit. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Which lives up to expectations. (laughs) Although it's not that big a part of the the movie you would think he was in the giant suit the whole time but he's not he's not no (laughs) (laughs) i don't know what's your first recommendation mine's actually very fitting for this show so it's the new series of heavyweight is out and you and i have both recommended the show generally before but i wanted to recommend particularly this episode which is the first episode of the new season have you listened to it yet i have it's amazing it's okay so the episode's called lenny and it's really, I think, one of one of the best. If you haven't listened to the show yet, the basic premise is that the host is this guy called Jonathan Goldstein, and he helps people navigate difficult or maybe like emotionally charged conversations, often connected to like specific experiences from their past, maybe difficult experiences from their past or relationships that they've lost touch with or whatever. And over the years of listening, you get to know his producers and his friend Jackie, and he's also a very funny person. So it's it kind of has a very interesting and I think really well-drawn balance between like emotional sincerity and humor. And this episode, the relationship at the center of it is Jonathan's with his childhood best friend, who's this guy called Lenny. And over the years, they've drifted apart, partly because they actually kept falling out and it became more abrasive between them. But now Lenny is dying and he needs a friend. And so Jonathan starts calling him again. And what unfolds is a really, really beautiful and actually surprisingly philosophical episode about friendship and about what we owe the people we love, how we might show up for each other in spite of difference or distance also. It includes some absolutely incredible recordings from Jonathan's childhood that he and Lenny made together. And really, it shows the debt of gratitude that Jonathan feels to Lenny because it was together that they first started experimenting with this form that has now in Jonathan's adult life become the show. And I think it's just, it's so generous of both of them. And ultimately really this like very deeply moving tribute to one particular friendship. It's very nuanced. It's great. It will make you weep. Just FYI, don't listen to it while you're driving or anything like that. (laughs) (laughs) What's next for you? Okay. Well, my second recommendation is the documentary Beckham on Netflix. Have you watched it? No, I'm dying to, especially after seeing all the amazing memes, particularly of Beckham being like, Victoria, you're not working class. Yes. Your dad, you just go in a Rolls Royce. 
it lives up to the memes, Octavia. I think you'd really like it. Yeah, I'm. I'm basically been saving it for a rainy day. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, it's directed by Fisher Stevens, who you might know as Hugo on Succession. Oh, yeah. Which is strange. That's strange. <laughs> <laughs> I think he's a good director. I think he asks interesting questions and has an interesting lens. I just really want to know, was it like always his passion project to speak to David and Victoria Beckham? I I have no idea. I don't know why this man is involved in this. (laughs) (laughs) That's really wild. Are you sure it's the same Fisher Stevens? It's definitely the same Fisher (laughs) Stevens. You'll recognize his voice immediately when you start watching it. I also don't think it's, it's not necessarily his passion because this is definitely produced by David and Victoria. (laughs) And you feel that. And that is, I think, something that it's worth holding as you watch it, because this is not the documentary that's going to necessarily get to the truth. And I think we have to acknowledge that. But it is so much better than it should be, considering that fact and considering that it's like a celebrity documentary. So basically, it's the story of Beckham's rise to fame, both on the football pitch, but also even more crucially off of it at the time in the 90s when football players truly became brands and global superstars and Beckham and his hair at the helm. (laughs) (laughs) And his sarong, don't forget the sarong. Yes, and his sarong. I didn't know any of that. So it was (gasps) so fun for me to discover this because I didn't live in in the UK in the 90s. So I like got some of this in America because he was a global superstar, but so much of this was new to me. And that was part of the delight. Oh, that's so fun. Yeah, because it was a wild time. (laughs) It was wild. (laughs) Um, But also, as you mentioned, it's about his marriage to Victoria Adams, aka Posh Spice, and features some very in-depth interviews from both of them about how they navigated their relationship, especially in the context of their fame. Okay, but wait, do they talk about Rebecca Luz? This is one of the weak points is that they allude to it, but I don't think they really confront it. And mm. that is obviously coming from them not wanting to talk about it. So he is apparently just a notorious shagger. Yes, they don't get into that. <laughs> <laughs> but They both, and maybe this is just great filmmaking, but they both come off as very likable, I have to say, Mm. and and relatively introspective. And I think this documentary does have some really interesting things to say about the 90s, about stardom, about the English press, about brands, about football. And it's also really riveting in terms of the football, especially if you don't know the outcome of every game, which I certainly didn't. And I bet you won't either, even if you were. (laughs) (laughs) No, I know there were like some big victories at some point. Some World Cup, maybe? I don't know. (laughs) I know he plays number seven. Okay. going to change. No, is that not being wing defense or something? I don't know. No, but the 90s were a time when I I did, I was exposed to more football than I have ever chosen to be since because I lived in a house with men who had it on television. So I'll remember some of it. I'm so curious to hear what you think because it's definitely too long. Right. But how can you resist David Beckham in a monogrammed beekeeping suit? Oh my God, I cannot. (laughs) Or footage of him in the dressing room with the Spice Girls on their world tour right before one of their gigs. 
it's irresistible. Also, he is he's an extremely beautiful person to look at. Yes. Like it's yes. like it's very easy to forget his handsomeness, quite the the impact it had. Yeah. And also just that he's really fit still today. I'm up for that. Okay. <laughs> What's your last recommendation? My last one, I'm just gonna actually it's gonna be a little callback to our chat about how our lives would be different if our shared project was a cooking show. Ooh. Because I watched the show Salt Fat Acid Heat. Oh, have you seen it? No, but I've been meaning to watch it. It's so really many delightful. people who I really respect and who are good cooks love that show. Yeah, it's super delightful. I mean, basically, I partly watched it because I want to become a better cook <laughs> <laughs> and I want to learn how to be more enthusiastic about cooking, which I still, you know, really, really lack. Very enthusiastic about eating, not very enthusiastic about cooking. <laughs> but I um I really loved watching it. I mean, it was also partly looking for a comfort watch because it's getting grey and dark and wet, and I just felt my mood plummeting. And it really worked for that reason. So it's a four-parter and the cook, Salmon Nosrat, is basically getting to grips with the basic elements of good cooking. And it's based on the book she wrote, Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. And basically her whole thesis is that if you can master these four elements, these are the four elements that make cooking good. And if you understand them, that's what's going to take your cooking from like fine to delicious. Mm-hmm. So if you can master the four elements, you can master the kitchen. And it's it's really like a reminder that cooking is also chemistry, right? Like it's fucking science, what happens in the oven. Okay. <laughs> but she, her whole thing is, it's science, but it doesn't have to be difficult. If you get the basics, then you'll understand what the processes are that are actually happening when you add salt or when you mm. add acid or when you add heat or um, fat. So it's actually fantastic because it's super, super informative, but at no point do you feel like you have to remember everything. It's showing you very clearly what these things are doing. And obviously, if you understand it better, you'll feel more confident to play around with those things when you're making food. There's that at the heart of it, but also it's just incredibly beautifully made, like very beautiful cinematography settings. And so it's each episode is each element. So she goes to Northern Italy to learn about fat. So you learn about olive oil, you learn about pork fat, and you learn about cheese. And you can see these like fantastic, very ancient modes of production and again, it's like partly to do with building a, a sensual, but also an intellectual relationship with food so that when you pour olive oil on your salad at home, you actually consider the process that the olives went through to become oil, and mm, I like which this. I think is a yeah. great thing. Yeah. So she goes to Japan to learn about salt. And it's a really interesting episode about like soy sauce and miso. And then for acid, she goes to Yucatan and she eats these insanely delicious looking sour oranges. Wow, you're really making me hungry. Yeah. And she learns about Mayan honey, this like incredible relationship with honey in in the Mayan culture. And again, she's really looking at the fact that like food production is a really direct line to our ancestors, especially localized food production. So that's also fascinating. She also just eats a lot of really amazing looking things. And she is so delighted by food. She's a very earnest person, also a complete goofball. And you believe in her delight so profoundly and her enthusiasm is really infectious. And she's totally unpretentious, which I found extremely refreshing. Like sometimes I find her almost a little bit annoying, but I'm like on her team. So I, it doesn't matter. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. But she's, yeah. yeah, she's really goofy. And anyway, the heat episode ends up in California where she lives and she makes the most insanely delicious looking chicken. And then this crispy Persian rice with her mum, which I am obsessed with making. It uses a colossal amount of butter in a way that you're like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> but yeah, it's great. And it, it really, I feel 
finished watching it and I was like, okay, I'm feeling more enthusiastic about food. I still probably had crisps for dinner, but I feel like it's it's on my journey <laughs> towards I, okay. cooking. Well, I need to get on this journey. Yeah, I would actually, I think it'd be a really good thing to watch while you're still in recovery from COVID because it's just transporting, but make sure you have something yummy to eat immediately afterwards otherwise yeah or during otherwise you'll feel a bit like bereft (laughs) okay yeah i'll have a a really delicious takeaway just queued up to arrive that's exactly the way to do it 100 percent. yeah great well that's all the time we've got that's all the time we have time for that's all we have time for time doesn't exist what is time (laughs) time means nothing to me um that is the end of this particular show but we will be back with the phenomenal Xiaolu Guo in our next show and we will see you then we will thanks for listening thank you 